Amen. If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 27. Acts chapter 27. I'll be reading the entire chapter this morning, so consider that as, uh, as we, it's our tradition to stand through the reading of Scripture, and so if you'd prefer not to stand for uh, the entirety of the chapter, that's, that's completely fine. Uh, but Acts chapter 27, if you're able, would you stand with me as we read from this portion of God's Word? Pay careful attention, this is God's Word. Acts chapter 27, starting in verse 1. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Sinaitis. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmoni. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. Because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there, on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon, a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Calda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me. And not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. 
When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took, a, they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. And they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land." The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. You may be seated. Let us pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your word. We ask that you might add your blessing to the reading and the preaching of your word, that you might, by your Holy Spirit, apply these truths to our hearts uh, that we might live for the glory of the one who has called us into fellowship with himself, for your glory. Lord, we ask that you would help us to receive this uh, as your word uh, with faith and love and to lay it up in our hearts and henceforth to practice it in our lives. Lord, even in this story, uh, we pray that you would help us to see Jesus, for we pray it in his name. Amen. Imagine that some of you have already experienced that great tradition of summer travel, which often includes the frequently repeated chant from the back seat, are we there yet, or how much longer? Perhaps those of you who have asked that question from the back seat have received the time-honored response handed down throughout the ages. We're five minutes closer than the last time you asked. When we're traveling on a journey, we are often anxious to arrive. We, we count the minutes, we count the hours, we measure the distance, we watch the Google map for changes in routes and arrival times. We wait, we wait, we wait on delayed flights, powerless before the mighty powers of the airline. Are we there yet? How much longer? We might reasonably ask that same question in this final portion of the book of Acts. Ever since Acts 19, uh, we've seen that Paul has been focused on a destination, two in particular. He's going to Jerusalem. He's going to Rome. Finally, 
After his arrival and arrest in Jerusalem and his two-year imprisonment in Caesarea, Paul is at last on his way to Rome uh, in fulfillment of Jesus' revelation to him, where he told Paul, you've testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, and you must also testify to these things in Rome. Paul has appealed to Caesar. If he had not done that, he would have been set free. But this was the way God was bringing him to his final destination in Rome. As the old hymn reminds us, uh, we approach our destination, our final destination, through many dangers, toils, and snares. Paul is no stranger to these obstacles. And this, this morning, we find another significant danger on the way to Rome, a hurricane-strength storm on the open sea with potential death and eventual shipwreck even with the preservation of life. This is a fascinating part of the story of the book of Acts. It's clearly important in the overall story. Luke slows down, devoting 44 verses with a detailed eyewitness account to this incident. In the span of these 44 verses, he roughly uses 30 specific nautical terms to describe the events that unfold. He tells us the centurion's name. He mentions cities, ports, gulfs, dangers out on the open sea. He engages in a bit of weather reporting and navigational strategy, even including details of Paul's speech and actions on board. I've been on a sailboat once. That's all that I can handle at this point. I don't ever want to get on a sailboat again. So reading this story is terrifying to me. The thought of being out on the open sea, the thought of storm and shipwreck, and then just casting about uh, without any expectation of deliverance. It's It's a moving, it's a gripping story. But it presses the question, why is this story here? Why doesn't Luke just tell us he was in Caesarea, he ended up in Rome? Why does he navigate for us this intense, dramatic unfolding of the journey that Paul and Luke and Aristarchus and all the others took on the way to Rome? Some think that Luke is simply kind of imitating Greek stories of seafaring adventure, like he's doing his own version of Homer like he's just providing some sort of interlude, some entertainment after all the drama of Paul's imprisonment in public defense. Uh, But Luke's narrative is actually quite different from all the old Greek tales. He is not writing as a sailor. Uh, He's including details that sailors would not have described in their retelling of stories like this. Furthermore, the story drips with reality, drips with historical detail. And if Luke were interested in simply giving us a little bit of a pause... From the drama that we've encountered thus far, this story hardly fits the bill for a lack of drama. Luke is an historian. He's telling us what happened. Uh, It's a historical narrative. These are events. This is what happened. And yet at the same time, we have to remember that all written history is selective. Uh, Historians don't tell us every single event that happens. They select the important things that they want to communicate to contribute to the overall story. So why did Luke include this? Why is this here in the book of Acts? I'd like to give you one sentence to try to capture Luke's central aim in this narrative. Jesus is expanding his witness through his people and there being a blessing in the midst of the storm. 
Jesus is expanding his witness through his people and there being a witness or being a blessing rather in the midst of the storm. So I want to look at three things this morning and then make some application toward the end. First, we want to look at that expansion, Jesus expanding his witness. Second, we want to look at the storm, being in the midst of the storm. And then third, we want to look at our being a blessing to others in the midst of the storm. So first, let's look at the expansion. Paul is on his way to Rome. Jesus is sending Paul to Rome, not simply to appeal to Caesar and to appear before Caesar's tribunal. He is expanding his witness of the gospel. And the way that he chooses to do that is through Paul going on this dangerous journey uh, under the uh, umbrella of this legal defense, this legal appeal to Caesar. But Paul is going there so that he can expand the witness of the gospel to Rome. Throughout the book of Acts, we've seen the witness of the gospel expanding. In the very beginning of the book of Acts, uh, Jesus says to to his disciples, stay here. You will be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses first in Jerusalem, then in the broader region of Judea, then north in Samaria, and then, he says, to the ends of the earth. And all roads lead to Rome in this era of history, and all roads lead out of Rome. And so if you're going to get to the ends of the earth, the best place to start from is Rome. Jesus is expanding his witness throughout the book of Acts, bringing in different people groups, bringing in different regions, and sending Paul here to bring the gospel to the center of the empire, uh, the city of Rome in Italy. Notice, too, the expansion of people along the way. Not only is Paul headed to Rome, but along the way, the witness of the gospel is being carried out on the ship. 276 passengers in all, most of whom, other than Paul and, uh, and well, Paul may be the only Jew, we don't know. Uh, Luke and Aristarchus are not Jewish. Along the way, Paul is, has access to all these Gentiles. Julius, the Roman centurion from the, the cohort that's in charge of the ship, all the other prisoners, the sailors, the captain, the owner of the ship, Paul has the opportunity to bear witness to the gospel even among these Gentiles. Jesus is expanding his witness, and this is the way he's doing it, through this dangerous journey that Paul engages on. This is part of Christ's plan of expansion, and here he sovereignly chooses to do it through a dangerous storm at sea. Let's talk about the storm for just a moment. Paul, or Luke rather, tells us Uh, that the time at which this ship is going out on its voyage uh, is after the fast. Uh, And and he's indicating there that it's not a safe time to be on the open sea. The fast is connected to the Day of Atonement, so this is in the fall. And typically in that time period, ships did not go out to sea uh, after like the middle of September into early October. And here is probably about the middle of October in A.D. 59. So this is not a safe time to be out on the sea. And yet these merchant vessels that they're using for this trip would oftentimes um, try to get in two journeys 
before things got super dangerous. And that's one of the ships that they catch is kind of on the tail end of this second journey, trying to squeeze it in before everybody gets off of the open sea because of the bad weather. And so what we can see from this is that this storm in some ways is expected, in some ways is not expected. And we we get a picture of that if you look down in um, the part of the story where they, they lodge at Fair Havens. They arrive at this little port near Crete uh, called Fair Havens. Paul says, we ought to stay here because it's going to be too dangerous to leave. The captain and the owner of the ship and the centurion, they all deliberate a little bit, and they decide they don't want to stay there. It's not a suitable place to spend the winter. And so there's another port about 40 miles to the west You've got, you've got the map. I don't normally put maps in here, but you've got a little map because there's just so many details. You've got a map. You can see it. They, they want to go about 40 miles west on the island of Crete to this place called Phoenix. And Paul says, no, 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 you shouldn't do it. We should stay here. And they, they disregard Paul's advice, and they think, we can make it. And so they go. And, and you see what happens. As they leave Fair Havens, verse 13, it says, the south wind blew gently. They had a a good wind behind them. It was moving them along. And from all that they could tell, this was a favorable condition for them. They were going to make their destination in the port of Phoenix. And then all of a sudden, verse 14, soon a tempestuous wind, it's literally a typhonic wind, like a typhoon called a northeaster, struck down from the land. Or I suppose if you're in New England, you call it a nor'easter, right? Isn't that what they say? It's basically a hurricane uh, sweeping down from the island of Crete all of a sudden, seemingly out of nowhere. They've got a south wind. Things are going gently. Things look good. Then all of a sudden, boom, whammo, a northeastern wind comes down upon them and uh, all hands on deck. It's a dangerous time. I think it's worth saying it this way. This is... Luke narrating an historical event to show us God expanding his witness through Paul uh, and bringing a blessing to people in the midst of the storm. So it's a real storm. It's a real ship. They're on a real ocean. All of that, all those details are historical. But it's, I think it's worth applying this to life when you consider the fact that in the scriptures, storms are often metaphors for the troubles of life. And The God of the Bible is the God who rules over the storm. And it's not just simply a way of saying God's in charge of the weather. He is, obviously. But it's also a way of saying if he's in charge of something as powerful as these storms, then when the storms of life come your way, you can trust him in the midst of that. And we see that same dynamic here as you have this unexpected but expected storm. It's a dangerous time on the sea, And yet they think they've got favorable winds, and then all of a sudden things change. And isn't that often how life feels? We're moving along, things seem to be going smoothly, and then whammo! Something comes seemingly out of the blue like a hurricane and completely devastates what we felt like was decent and good in life. There's a typhonic storm catching us off guard. And you notice the effect that has on those who are on the ship. 
they recognize the desperate situation that they're in. They can't sail into the wind to, to keep going towards their destination. They are at the mercy of this powerful wind that's just dragging them along in the open sea. Notice their desperation in the midst of this storm. What do they start doing? They start lightening the load of the ship. They're throwing off anchors. They're throwing off tackle. They're, they're even throwing off one of the sails. They're just trying to survive in the midst of this storm. They start throwing off the cargo, the ship's tackle, and so forth. At a certain point, the storm is so thick above them. In verse 20, it says they couldn't even see the sun or the stars for many days. No small tempest lay on us. And then this, Luke tells us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Sometimes life feels like you're on a ship in the middle of the Mediterranean and out of the blue, a hurricane has come upon you and is rocking you back and forth and you're doing everything in your power to desperately just survive and get through the storm so that you can get through the other side. Life is like that. And sometimes it's so much like that that no matter what we do, we end up abandoning hope, much like these sailors on this ship. That, that, ins, that note that Luke says here, that they abandoned hope, uh, is the turning point in the story. I don't know if you caught that in the lengthy narrative there, but right after that, verse 21, notice what it says. Since they had been without food for a long time, uh, they've been so working so hard in such a desperate situation, they couldn't even stop to eat. Paul stood up among them and said, man, I mean, he says, I told you so. Let's just get that out of the way. He says, you should have listened to me. You know, he's, he's not above that. Uh, you should have listened to me. He was right. Uh, and not set sail. Yet, verse 22, yet now I urge you to take heart. Notice what God is doing through Paul in the midst of this storm. He has placed Paul on this ship to get him to Rome. But in the midst of this storm, Paul is being a blessing to those who are in the midst of it with him. Jesus is expanding his witness. And the way that he's doing it here is through his people being a blessing to others in the midst of the storm. And he calls us to do the same. There's some biblical, biblical background that's worth having here to try to understand what Paul is doing. In Genesis 12, when God calls Abram, later Abraham, God calls Abram out of uh, Ur of the Chaldees, his ancestral paternal home, he makes a covenant with Abraham, and he says to Abraham, uh, I'm going to bless you, and through you, I'm going to bless all the nations. Those who bless you, they'll be blessed. Those who curse you, I will curse. But that central promise that's given to Abraham is incredibly important for the rest of the storyline of the Bible. I will bless the nations through your descendants. Obviously, that's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, who is the ultimate seed of Abraham and through whom all of the promises of Abraham are kept. He is the ultimate blessing to the nations, but it's also a word to us who belong to the God of Abraham, who have faith like Abraham in God's promises, that God has called us to be a blessing wherever he has placed us. There's a couple other passages in Scripture that, that capture this. My favorite 
is Proverbs 11.30, which says, "The the The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. He who is wise wins souls. Think about that imagery for a moment. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. Part of what the Proverbs are saying there is that if, if you're righteous in Christ, if you belong to him, then the fruit of your life is the tree of life. What? The fruit of your life is bringing others into the life, the resurrection life of Jesus. Or, or Psalm 84 that talks about how blessed is the man in whose heart is the highways to Zion. Going through the valley of Baca, the valley of weeping, he brings springs of water. Think about the imagery there. You're going through a dry and dusty land. We live in a world soaked by sin and under its curse, broken in more ways than we can fathom. And yet if you belong to Jesus, if Jesus dwells in you by faith, Christ dwells in your heart by faith, then everywhere you go, guess what? You bring the life of heaven with you. You bring the blessing of the presence of God's grace everywhere you go. So it's like you're walking through a valley of weeping, and as you go past, you bring joy. You bring springs of water that bring life. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. Paul is on this ship in the midst of this horrible storm, neither sun nor stars are visible for days. Everybody's hungry. Everybody's desperate. They have abandoned all hope. And he stands up and he says, man, take courage. Because God has given me a promise that if you trust him, he will save you. And notice what they do. Um, can you imagine the situation there? I would be dismissive. I would say, uh, are you crazy? But he breaks bread. He gives thanks, and they eat. In the midst of the storm, they believe God's promise, and Paul is a blessing to them. He warns them. They don't listen. He still encourages them. He's been given a divine promise. He believes it, and he calls them to believe it as well. Isn't that a picture of life in Christ in a broken world? We've got warnings. that there's, there's a storm coming far greater than one that you encounter on the sea, the storm of God's judgment for sin. We've got encouragement. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We've got divine promises throughout the scriptures. God's promise to forgive is promise to give righteousness to all those who believe and to secure for us an eternal home in the heavens in a place where one day there will be no more sin No more sorrow, no more dying, and no more sea. Read the book of Revelation. There's no sea there. The sea was a place of chaos, a place of danger. There's no sea in the New Jerusalem because all is is peace and joy and love in the presence of God. You've got divine promises, and if you have faith in those promises, you can call others to faith in the midst of the storm. Jesus calls us to do this same thing. Let me just illustrate... uh, one way that we've, we've experienced this. Y'all are going to think that I cry every time I preach, but I promise I don't. <laughs> but I probably will here. When, uh, when Piper was born, gotten previous permission, so just don't worry. Uh, some of you know this, that when Piper was born, uh, there was an emergency right after she was uh, born. And 
it was frightening. It was scary. I thought Carly was going to die. I thought, am I going to be left here with a brand new baby and no wife? Uh, that's, that's what it felt like. Carly had the same experience of, is this the end? Um, because of just complications in delivery. And I remember standing in the delivery room and, and they uh, took Carly out rapidly and, and Piper as well. It was just minutes after she was born. And they had to go do emergency surgery and I, I was just left there. Uh, it was horrible. And uh, in the midst of that, two, two things happened that illustrate the, the power of God's people being a blessing in the midst of the storm. One was, from my perspective, I walked out and all our family or much of our family was there and I had the, the job of saying, we've got a baby and we're not sure what's happening next. And it was, it was all I could do to get the words out. And my mom was there and she, she, said, uh, she said, well, let's, let's pray. And of course, you know, the token pastor was me at that point. And so they were waiting on me to pray. And I, I had no words. I couldn't do it. And so my mom prayed. Uh, she was a blessing in the midst of a storm. Later, Wallace came up. He was a blessing in the midst of the storm. Carly's side of things, they had taken her into the OR and were preparing her for emergency surgery, and, and God gave her peace in the midst of that. This was it. There was peace. There was no fear. Uh, praise God. But there was a nurse, Lawanda. We love Lawanda. We don't know Lawanda anymore, but we love Lawanda because in that moment, she just leaned over and whispered in Carly's ear and just prayed for her right there. A blessing in the midst of life's storm. Paul was doing that literally, physically on the boat, but it's always more than that. Several times Luke says they were saved. Uh, at the end of the verse, at the end of the passage, the result is everyone was saved. It's the same word for salvation. He's, he's, he's describing kind of a dual reality here. If you're a Christian and you have the blessing of the life of Christ within you through faith in his gospel and the fruit of God's grace, the tree of life, then everywhere you go, you are called to bring that same blessing to those in the midst of life's storms. Let's talk about how we do this just for a moment. And I've got a few illustrations to try to drive this home. How, how, can, how can you as God's people be a blessing in the midst of the storm? Two, two things. First, by receiving and resting in the blessing of God's grace to you in Christ. You cannot give away what you have not received for yourself. Uh, and so if you're, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, then you have received this blessing. God calls you to rest in it so that as you do, you are able to give it away to those who are in need. But if you're not a believer, if you've not received this grace, then you, you can't give it away because you don't have it. But the Lord wants you to have it. And it's a gift given to all who will receive it through faith. To, to accept what Jesus has done on our behalf, his living a perfect life, righteousness before God, his dying sacrificially and as a substitute for us in our place. We're called to receive it and with it forgiveness and righteousness and a home with God forever and a hope that cannot be shaken even by 
life's storms. So how do we become a blessing to others in the midst of life's storms? By receiving and resting in the blessing of God's grace to you in Christ. That will keep you from doing what the sailors did, finding every human measure to preserve life and still be at the end of it being without hope outside of God's divine grace. Don't go there first. Go to the Lord first. Rest in his grace and then give that to others. Secondly, in that confidence of God's grace, of the Father's love for us in Christ, it's out of that confidence that we are able to lovingly serve others in the hard places. Let me give just two illustrations uh, of this. Um, Yeah, two. I have a third one. We'll just do two. Um, Some of you may have seen recently uh, the movie Flaming Hot, which is about uh, Cheetos. It's not about other things, even though the title is a bit ambiguous. It's about (laughs) Cheetos and um, uh, Frito-Lay developing a spicy Cheeto back in the 90s, I think. It's, it's actually a pretty interesting story, but at the, at the center of this story is a man named Richard Montagnez. I think I'm saying that right. He is the janitor of the Frito-Lay plant in uh, Rancho Cucamonga, California, which is just delightful to say uh, out loud. He's the janitor at this plant, and the, the plant is about to shut down because the economy is bad because of, um, I don't know, the president at that time or whatever. But the economy's bad, and Frito-Lay is about to start shutting down these plants. And, and he realizes that the, his, his plant's about to get shut down, but he could help save it by uh, helping develop another flavor of Cheeto to serve the Hispanic community and population in the California area. He says, look, nobody's, nobody's making chips that we like, so let's make some and, and we'll, we'll get this you know, whole market share that nobody else is really thinking about. They're all ignoring us. And, uh, and so he, he's, you know, he's the janitor. Nobody's going to listen to him. There's all kinds of prejudice involved in the story that he's trying to overcome. But at the heart of the story, it's not really just about spicy Cheetos. The heart of the story is about relationships. He has this fraught relationship with his father, who was abusive to him as he was growing up. And, uh, and he can't get his father's... His father has become a Christian later in life, but he's still very harsh towards him. And he can't get his father's abusive uh, words and actions out of his head. Really, his words are what stay with him. You know, his father said, you're nothing, you're not important, you never amount to anything, th- those kinds of things. And that's, that's what he's got in his head, and he can't get past it to see that he can do something profitable, he could be somebody. And in this one scene, he's about to go and present his spicy Cheeto pitch to the CEO of PepsiCo at that point that owned Frito-Lay. And he's got to go get a tie. He has no idea how to tie a tie. And he goes to his father because his father had been to court many times, going to prison, uh, and he knew how to tie a tie because of that. And there's this beautiful scene where his father is tying his tie, and he looks at him in the face, and he says, I'm proud of you. And he just, he just break, you know, his eyes fill with tears. It's like this was what he needed in order to go with confidence to deliver this pitch for Spicy Cheetos. Uh, he didn't need a, a business plan necessarily. He had one. Um, he needed his father's love. And in the confidence of that, he was able to go and accomplish these great things. It's an amazing story. Likewise, 
we are called to rest in the Father's love for us in Jesus. A love that is given not on the basis of your abilities, your works, your effort, your merit. A love that is given to you on account of Jesus Christ alone. His work, his merit, his perfection is given to you through faith. And nothing can change that. God's love does not increase as you do better. It does not decrease if you do worse. It is perfect for you. The love with which he loves the Son is yours because you are united to him in faith. And it's out of that confidence that you can be a blessing to others. A final illustration, then we'll, we'll, we'll close. So, uh, I've been telling a story recently to, to some of you, and it just has stuck with me. Some of you remember a few years ago, we had a slight disturbance in, in our worship service. Um, a, a, a woman had come in who was agitated by something I had said in Sunday school that provoked uh, intense anger from her. I, I had not intentionally provoked her, just so we're clear. Uh, but it was startling, and uh, it, 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 it was unsettling. This, this woman's uh, anger is something that I had said in Sunday school. And she'd come back and yelled at me and, and some of the other elders who were gathered back there and then came out to the congregation and, and let everyone else know how angry she was. And it was clear to all of us that this was a woman who was wounded, a woman who was, uh, had experienced uh, significant pain in her life. And, and out of that was this, this anger and some of the things that I had, I had said during Sunday school. And... Um, but it was, it was unsettling. Later, uh, fast forward a little bit from that uh, unsettling scene, some of us were, were talking about the incident and were you know, just kind of thinking through things. And uh, she was, uh, it turned out that she was quite the athlete and, and could have probably knocked any of us men out if she wanted to. Okay? So just keep that in mind um, and, and said that she would do so. Later, we were talking about it, and, and Wallace, uh, our, our former pastor, for those who don't know Wallace, uh, Wallace said something like, I just hope that uh, maybe she'll go through some crisis and we can show up. And I thought, I don't want to get punched in the face. Like, <laughs> I'm not showing up in the midst of her crisis. But that was Wallace. It is Wallace. And he was right. I mean, you've got to figure out how to do that wisely, obviously. But the point was well taken. What are Christians called to do? We're not called to self-protection. We're not called to circle the wagons when things get hard and say, well, keep, out, keep all the difficult things out. Keep all the difficult people out. Keep all the difficult problems out. But we do that, don't we? I don't want to be vulnerable. I don't want to be uh, hurt in some way. And so we circle the wagons. We self-protect. I don't want to get punched in the face by somebody that, I mean, that would just be embarrassing and hurtful in all kinds of ways, obviously. But I want to self-protect. And the Christian gospel of grace in no way is about self-protection. It's about a God who made a world. That world has gone awry because of sin. And he doesn't circle the wagons. He doesn't close his heart to the world and say, I'm not having anything to do with that. Rather, in love and in mercy, God the Son takes on our humanity, our flesh. The dust of the earth sits on the throne of heaven. He became one of us. 
entered into the fray, as it were, dealt deadly blows to our enemies through his own death, conquering them all in his resurrection. He became the blessing to us in the midst of the storm. And he calls us to be the same so that as we go through the valley of weeping, which is just a perfect description for life in this world, it's a valley of weeping, you have the life of heaven in you and you make it a spring of life because Christ is in you. May we be those who expand the witness of Jesus' resurrection, his gospel, his good news, by being a blessing to others in the midst of the storm, always directing their attention to Christ, crucified and risen.